friends, I'm Dr. Gracie Christie, and this is Conversations with Consequences, the radio show of the Catholic Association, where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network at 5 p.m. on Saturdays, and also on Sirius XM Channel 130. If you want to listen to our show as a podcast, go directly to your favorite platform or to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. Today, Maureen Ferguson, she's my friend and colleague at the Catholic Association, will be joining me for the whole show. And at the bottom of the hour, we'll be talking to Congressman Dan Lipinski. He's a pro-life Democrat with a strong pro-life record, many terms in Congress. And he joins with a look at his own battle with the abortion giant Planned Parenthood, a battle that he lost, unfortunately, although he didn't lose his integrity, and all about the importance of bringing one's faith into the public square. What could be more essential and inspiring these days when all of us are being called to be brave and live our faith fully, right? But to start, we're being joined by legal scholar Helen Alvarez. She will give us a close look at an alarming Supreme Court decision this week. In June, medical, uh, the court found that the state's law requiring abortion doctors to have admitting privileges in a nearby hospital actually posed substantial obstacles to a woman's access to abortion instead of understanding that it brought significant benefits for the safety of women. As a physician, you can imagine how much this ruling infuriates me. We'll be talking to Helen Alvarez about it and also about another case that just came through from the Supreme Court, this time a win uh, in the case of Espinoza. Welcome to Conversations with Consequences, Helen. Thank you. It's great to be here. So, Helen, in the last couple of weeks, we've had good news and bad news coming out of the Supreme Court. I thought we'd start with the bad news and then move on to the happier news to end our segment. So, of course, with the bad news, I'm talking about the case of June Medical versus the state of Louisiana, in which the Supreme Court struck down a Louisiana state law, which asked abortion providers, abortionists, to have admitting privileges in nearby hospitals. This was done to promote patient safety, and the law was struck down, I believe partly because it was a similar law to another case in which the law was also struck down out of Texas. So there was a precedent there. It did, um, but it, it's a wee bit more complicated than that, of course. The plurality, the four liberal justices, struck the law down on the grounds that it was exactly like a law that they had struck down recently with Justice Kennedy on the court, uh, a law from Texas that had required admitting privileges for doctors. And they said the Louisiana law was just like this prior law they had struck down. What was important about the plurality opinion was that they made up a new test, you know, what else is new in abortion jurisprudence, claiming that the court had the right to look again at the balance of benefits and burdens, how the law would benefit women's uh, health, how the law would burden it, the same uh, balance that the state legislature is actually constitutionally charged with looking at. The court said, no, 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 we're going to look at it too, and we're going to balance benefits and harms of the law and we've determined that the law is more harmful and presents an obstacle to women getting an abortion than it is beneficial but the fifth vote in june medical came from justice roberts and justice roberts voted to strike down the louisiana law for a different reason he said that the supreme court in this case the louisiana law and the texas case had made up a new standard for judging abortion laws and they had no right to make it up 
So he's right about that. But then he said the reigning test is the test we had in the Casey decision from 1992, which just asks whether a law is a substantial obstacle to women getting abortion. He says this law is a substantial obstacle. Excuse me. <laughs> excuse me. And he by he votes to concur in the judgment with the plurality, giving them five votes, even though he says they used the wrong test. So they win uh, in in the, uh, the liberal wing of the court, but going forward, the test that will be applied to abortion laws is not the test in this case, but the test that really came out of the Casey decision. So that's the little complicated part. Huh. Helen, so just to give our listeners a little more of the backstory here, this Louisiana law nullified by the court, it was passed by a state representative, Katrina Jackson is her name. She's a Democrat. She's an African-American woman. And she saw that women in her state were being harmed by incompetent abortionists operating in what the record showed was shockingly unsanitary clinics. So her law simply required that abortion doctors have the same admitting privileges as doctors at other outpatient surgical clinics because this is a means of sort of weeding out the incompetent or quack abortionist. One of the abortionists in the case was actually not even an OBGYN. I believe he was an ophthalmologist. So there's there's abundant evidence of abortion industry malpractice. There's a long line of notorious uh, abortionists. So how is it with a law that is seemingly so simple, how is it that Chief Justice Roberts just four years ago supported a, this similar Texas law. H- how could he perform such a backflip in this case? Yes. So uh, an answer and, and then a bridge to some more about what she said. The answer is that Justice Roberts said, I do not want to be a person who votes to upset prior decisions willy-nilly. He cited a doctrine known as stare decisis, the, the decision stands, and said, Basically, whether for reasons of the reliability of the law or the stature of the court, it's not right for us to, to, to put out a decision and then basically to to flip it going forward. The previous decision showed that laws like this were a substantial obstacle to women. Therefore, I'm going to vote for it. He said that the parties in the case had not asked for a reconsideration of the whole question about whether there is anything like a right to abortion. And of course, he could have spoken more about that, but did We know that he doesn't always rely on stare decisis. In fact, even in this term, he's said, you know, you can't respect certain kinds of decisions. They're just outright wrong. And ironically, he had dissented away from the holding in the the Texas admitting privileges cases, saying that opinion was wrong in the first place. So we don't know whether he wants to strike a certain personal profile in the press before the public as a certain kind of justice. We don't know whether he believes deep down in his heart that stare decisis required this. For those who want to pursue more, Maureen, of what you were talking about, the best opinion to read is Gorsuch's. Gorsuch goes on in brilliant lengths, and uh, by the way, Alito does too, but Gorsuch in particular highlights that there were literally dozens of uh, of health and ethical violations already uh, known against these clinics, that the clinic's vetting procedure was absolutely a joke, and they actually had allowed radiologists and ophthalmologists to do abortions, that if a doctor basically hasn't lost his license anywhere, well, that's good for them, and they'll take 
take him. And they had testimony. Again, this this horrid claim by, you know, abortion supporters that they represent women. The testimony was all on the side of women who literally were left, you know, bleeding, abandoned, perforated, etc. by abortionists who said, well, you know, we're done here. You know, my job is done. Go, you know, go take care of yourself somewhere else. And had no intention of assisting those women with the problems the abortionists had caused. So we know that Louisiana had excellent reason for passing laws that basically, as you say, Maureen, put these doctors in the same positions of needing admitting privileges as doctors who do things like LASIK eye procedures and colonoscopies. I mean, it it really is, frankly, ridiculous. If you're just joining us, this is Conversations with Consequences, and we're listening to Professor of Law at Antonin Scalia Law School at George Mason University, Helen Alvary. Helen, one thing that struck me, and I'm sure it struck people who are more legally minded than I, is that the people bringing the suit were the abortion clinic owners. It was actually June Medical, the abortion clinic bringing the suit. And what they were asking was to be allowed to have lower standards for treatment of the the women than other surgical centers in the area. How come this didn't strike the justices more strongly? I think the most significant thing you can say there is that when it comes to abortion, the rules are different. You know, abortion is like treated as like a super right. Uh, Erica Bakiaki wrote this great piece at SCOTUS blog today where she said, can you imagine letting gun manufacturers bring lawsuits on behalf of people who want to own guns, right? Can you mm-hmm. imagine that anyone would think, oh, no, 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 we want to let them vindicate people's right to have guns. I mean, the, again, the, the left would be absolutely furious at this. But here you have, and all the uh, or almost all of the dissenters noted it, the idea that people who benefit financially from performing shoddy health care upon women are the people who can sue successfully to strike down laws intended to protect women's health. The the conflict of interest here is absolutely huge. And, you know, the abortion industry has counted on this because they have the money and the legal power and the, the, the entire legal organizations devoted to representing basically corporate abortion, Planned Parenthood, these other clinics, uh, whereas women would not likely sue for this. It's Planned Parenthood and other abortion clinics whose names are all over these cases suing to strike down laws protecting women and children. Uh, really, it, it's so like the fox guarding the hen house and the fox claiming to speak for the hens, right? Um, <laughs> so can, can you expound a little bit more on the conflict of interest idea or, or more maybe even the issue of who should have standing in abortion cases like right. this? Because I think pro-lifers really were hoping that the court would speak to that issue because why on earth should the abortion clinics have standing to sue for the rights of women? So first of all, standing is the following concept. It means that because the court can only hear cases and controversies, things where people's rights and interests are actually in conflict, then cases need to be brought by people who have suffered an actual injury to a legally recognized interest. The dissents in this case pointed out that the abortionists and the clinics have no legally recognized interests. They don't have a legal, a statutory, a constitutional right to do abortions under circumstances which are less than safe. <laughs> they, they have no such right. They don't even have a right to do safe abortions. No one has a right to perform abortions. It's a matter of 
getting a license, demonstrating that you can medically do these, etc. So the state is well within its power to regulate them, and they have no right to say, like any other doctor, we have a right to do this thing without regulation. Majority in June Medical said, well, you know, we've allowed abortionists and abortion clinics to have standing in so many cases. It's been our practice, number one. Number two, really they're vindicating the interests of third parties whose interests would be indirectly harmed if uh, we had fewer doctors and clinics in Louisiana. So they use the indirect harm grounding. The question of what they had done in the past really should have no weight. But again, the dissents forcefully pointed out that that indirect harm thing should be really rebutted completely, swept off the table by the fact that, as you better put it, Maureen, it's like allowing the foxes to speak for the hens and say, if you let us be uh, less than ethical or less than safe, that'll be good for women. Helen, I've read following this disaster at June Medical at the Supreme Court that maybe the pro-life strategy of incrementally presenting more and more regulations on abortion and bringing, trying to bring down the age of the, of the pregnancy at which abortions can be performed and things like this admitting privileges, that that was a bad strategy and that Justice Roberts' explanation, his his opinion, presents another another way forward at, and going straight to Roe and whether or not abortion should be legal at all. Do you think that might be true? You know, that's a great subject of conversation. It is certainly possible. It was noted, and I want to say it was noted by Thomas, Roberts, Gorsuch, and maybe also Alita, very specifically, that the parties did not ask us to revisit Roe or Casey. And Thomas penned an absolutely brilliant dissent that went through, that rehearsed a future opinion where it is held absolutely properly, in my opinion, but more than my opinion. I I just think it's impossible to get around that the 14th Amendment could never be interpreted to create a federal constitutional right of abortion. This tells us we don't know for sure. Gorsuch did not express the opinion. Kavanaugh did not express the opinion in this case that the right of abortion definitively does not exist in the Constitution. So we don't know for sure we have five votes for that, but the, the the way of going about this indirectly to make abortion, you know, to drive bad abortionists out of the system, drive bad clinics out, reduce the number of abortions, it, it didn't work here for very complicated reasons. On the other hand, some other incremental laws, among my favorite are the law of Indiana, and I think at least another state that bans abortions on grounds of discrimination against those who are disabled or, you know, based on sex or race, um, I think that's a really wonderful question for the court and one that would push back against the number of abortions that are done guarding minorities and the poor and the disabled. But that may be correct, Grazia, and it may be interesting to see the movement attack on strategy. So, Helen, if, if I understand you correctly, I hope you're giving us hope here. <laughs> I, and I'm, I'm wondering if you're just kind of saying this wasn't the best case for the pro-life side. And I, I saw you wrote a brilliant analysis of this case in the National Catholic Register. And there you were saying that this case didn't bring us any closer to overturning Roe, but yet it did not likely move us further away either. So it, is that yes. what you mean by this? Yes, it is what I mean. I think it's not good for us. And Justice Roberts could have been braver, bolder. He didn't have to vote stare decisis here. He could have said the whole edifice is built 
built on sand uh, and that was a great disappointment but the fact is that there wasn't a substantive reaffirmation that Casey is good law and a proper interpretation of the Constitution only by Justice Roberts that it's what we have now and so I don't think this stands in our way for a strategy to overturn Roe. It is not going to be cited by anybody in the liberal wing of the court if Roe comes up for close evaluation. Well, that's some good news, Helen. But in general, June was depressing for our side. And that was right on the heels of Bostock, which was another big disappointment for people like us, people who understand these things. But we did have some good news that just came out of the Supreme Court again, and that is the case of Espinoza. Helen, as you're the expert, you can explain to our listeners what happened there and what it means. This is so fascinating. I My stomach was like churning with happiness when I was reading the case. <laughs> Let me give a little background. In the mid to late 19th century, when Catholics, especially Irish, were emigrating to the U.S. and founding their own school systems, there was a gigantic anti-Catholic backlash. I mean, we were deemed to be dirty, unintellectual, anti-democratic, enthralled to a foreign figure, the Pope, versus being real Americans. There swept the United States a movement in favor of something called the Blaine Amendment, which almost became a federal constitutional amendment governing all the states, which banned state money from going to religious schools. The um, It almost passed at the federal level. It did not, but I think it passed up to 38 states, put it in their state constitutions. Well, for many years, states refused to allow any funding to go to religious schools, even, you know, with the, the voucher movement and the, the desire of many poorer Americans to get to either safer or better or just religious schools, these Blaine Amendments were making that impossible. This case today, the Espinoza versus the Montana Revenue Commission or something, was a couple of uh, Christian families who wanted to send their kids to Christian schools in Montana. A fund was created and the state had agreed in a law that if people donated money to that fund, they got to, they got to pay less taxes. They got, a, they got a tax credit. The state constitution, however, was deemed by the Montana Supreme Court to ban this arrangement. No, they said, giving anybody a break on their taxes because money is being sent to a religious school is a violation of our state constitution. It's like directly putting money into the coffers of religious schools. Our state constitution says no. The question today before the court was, is that provision in the Montana constitution a violation of the free exercise clause of the federal constitution. Remember, the federal constitution has a supremacy clause. State constitutions cannot give less free exercise than the federal constitution. The court held that Montana's constitutional Blaine Amendment violated the free exercise clause, which tends to indicate that every state that has it, and there's over 30, can no longer, if they decide to give money to private schools, can no longer refuse to let religious schools have them too. It's an amazing result. We already know, because the Supreme Court has held, that it's okay for states to have programs whereby the independent private choices of parents, they decide to use certain money, usually voucher money, in order to send their kids to a religious school. Today's opinion wasn't about whether it's okay for states to do that. It's about whether states, if they give money to private institutions, 
can ban them from religious. So it was a great decision. So the case was essentially a free exercise religious liberty case, but it has the effect of being a, just a monumental win for school choice advocates as well. And that translates into being a huge win for low-income families who are seeking a better future for their children. And it couldn't have come at a better time because there's a debate in Congress about whether to allow any sort of tax scholarship, tax credit scholarships for, for school choice. And we're seeing the tragic closure of hundreds of Catholic schools across the nation, particularly in urban areas that are closing due to the economic fallout from the pandemic. So I think there are many reasons to be excited about this case. I'm reminded of something I read from Justice Sotomayor several years ago when her Catholic school in the Bronx closed. She said to the New York Times, you know how important those eight years were for her in Catholic schools? She said what it meant for all of our families, like my mother, who were dirt poor. She watched what happened to my cousins in public school and worried that if we went there, we might not get out. So she wow. scrimped and saved. It was a road of opportunity for kids with no other alternative. Wow. So I just love that quote from her. Anyway, so I'm, I'm curious, what are your thoughts on this angle of the court's decision, even though they weren't speaking directly to the school choice issue? Well, interestingly, it was already in the record that those grants were going to people who had children who were disabled or poor. And there was a disproportionate amount going to minority families. So it, we know that that's how it was actually operating. In fact, second, an interesting little thing in this case, you know, after years of of, uh, aid to religious school cases where they talked about religious schools as sort of like, you know, somewhat undemocratic scary factories of conformity producing children to follow a certain religion. Here we had Justice Alito saying a lot of people are afraid to send their kids to the public schools because their values are so ant antithetical to the parents. And isn't it wonderful that now people who have real school choice like wealthy people but are poor are going to have the opportunity to go to religious schools too. So it was a very explicit point in his opinion. And, and that is a very true point. I know a lot of people here in, in Miami, where I am, are recent immigrants, have lost everything in Venezuela, for instance, with socialism or any other situation in Latin America, and they're consigned, their children are trapped in public schools, and they are horrified at the ideologies that are being stuffed down their children's throats. And, you know, to recent immigrants, they are even more shocking than they are to us who have had time to get used to that, even if our children aren't necessarily at public school. So I think this is such good news. I hope that it translates rather quickly into some choice for poor children. Do you think that it will take some time for this uh, decision to have real effects across the nation? Well, I mean, just on the logic of it, I see two possible effects. One of them is that places that had felt constrained by their state's Blaine amendments will now begin to construct true school choice projects. The other is, is a more problematic, a little more complicated. The court didn't hold that states had to do voucher programs that included religious schools. It only said if you have one and it includes 
secular private schools, it has also to include religious ones. So some people will argue in states that are really anti-religious schools, or they're like all about public schools, everyone should go to public school, that should be all there is. Those states will be less inclined to do voucher programs because they know if they do them for any private school, they also have to include religious schools. So it, uh, it can go either way, depending on the state's initial disposition regarding vouchers in the first place. I saw on Twitter some very angry postings from people who, from the public school teachers unions. They're very upset about this. Although it sounds to me like there might be a, a, a silver lining for them if that is taken to mean that it's better not to have voucher programs at all. Yeah, I I, I really don't understand the, the public school union statements on this. I mean, all of us should be about what is good for the well-being of children. The idea that they are sort of dead set against private schools simply makes no sense. Private you know, schools have very good records. And Maureen, uh, tell us that, that statistic that you told President Trump on that call one day about how much money each Catholic student saves, the, the taxpayer. Well, Catholic schools educate children at about half the cost of public schools, but they have far better outcomes. They graduate about 99% of their students from high school. About 86% go on to four-year colleges. And if you think of the cost of the public schools absorbing the almost $2 million students that are currently in Catholic schools, if these Catholic schools are essentially going out of business due to the pandemic, it would it would cost the taxpayer actually about $24 billion a year to educate all these children that are currently being educated in Catholic schools. Well, Maureen, here's hoping that uh, taxpayers will see that private schools, especially parochial schools, are an amazing saving and start getting those voucher programs into place in each state so that this great news out of the Supreme Court will have effect right away. And thank you, Helen, for joining us. Thank you for being a friend of Conversations with Consequences and for being your very smart, very intellectual self on our show. Thank you. Who, who wouldn't come on if you get compliments like this at any time? <laughs> let's all uh, say our prayers for the last couple of decisions that uh, that mattered to us a lot. The Little Sisters of the Poor and the California teachers cases about the school's right to hire and fire its own teachers. You're so right. Yeah, we need to all of us pray really hard about this and hope that we get two more wins out of the Supreme Court. And thanks again, Helen. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye, Maureen. Bye, Helen. Coming up next on Conversations with Consequences, we'll be chatting with Democratic Congressman Dan Lipinski about his strong pro-life record and what it's like to carry the message of the gospel and the dignity of human life without compromise. Next on EWTN Radio. Conversations with Consequences, the weekly radio show of the Catholic Association, broadcasting every Saturday at 5 p.m. on EWTN Radio. We're so excited to welcome welcome Congressman Dan Lipinski onto the show. He is serving the 3rd Congressional District in the state of Illinois. He's an eight-term Catholic pro-life congressman who we are very sad to say lost his primary recently to a pro-abortion challenger called Marie Newman after a total assault, no holds barred by Planned Parenthood. Welcome to the show, Congressman. 
That's good to be with you. Congressman, you don't remember me, I don't think, but we've met a couple times at the March for Life in D.C. We've met back in the media tent, um, and I was always happy to see a pro-life Democrat in the mix. Very happy. I thought it's wonderful to have people from every side of the aisle, every, every kind of person, supporting a an idea that is just human. It's not a political idea. It's, it's a humane idea that all lives are valuable and they should all be respected and their dignity preserved. So thank you. Thank you for, for doing that from, from, the, from your side and from your perspective. Well, I, I've always uh, thought it was very important for the pro-life movement to have people in both, in both parties, uh, both uh, Republicans and, and Democrats, uh, because I think it's an issue for any, um, any movement. If it becomes a one-party movement, it's much easier for that party to take that issue for, for granted. And uh, I think that um, uh, that is why the pro-abortion side uh, spent a lot of money uh, to try to get me out of Congress uh, as a dep- Democratic representative. They spent about $3 million in 2018 and nearly won, and they repeated and spent at least that much uh, earlier this year, and uh, I was nearly defeated. But, you know, I, I, I tell you, I, I'm proud to have, uh, have stood up for being pro-life. A lot of people have... Uh, immediately reached out to me and thanked me. I think this is a, uh, a loss for the uh, pro-life movement, but uh, I'm going to continue on uh, doing uh, what I can uh, my last uh, six months in office and then after I leave office to continuing to uh, promote a cultural culture of life. Well, Congressman, this is Maureen here, and I think we cannot underestimate how devastating losing you in the House of Representatives is, because back in the day when I was lobbying at National Right to Life, we had 99 Democrats who would vote against tax funding of abortion, for example, and um, and many, many who would vote against late-term abortion. But now we're down to three Democratic members of Congress who will cast pro-life votes. And you, of course, were their leader, the leader of that small band of pro-life Democrats. So it's devastating to see you heading on to new adventures, but no doubt God has an amazing plan for your future. And and later in the interview, we'd love to ask you about that. But but tell us about your primary. And they, they came after you viciously. As you mentioned, they spent about $3 million against you, Planned Parenthood did, and the abortion lobby. So give us a little insight into that primary race? Well, I was probably outspent uh, about three to one, which is remarkable for an incumbent to be outspent by by that much. But uh, this just showed how important it was for them to to, to come after me. And uh, it was a uh, hard fought race. I put more into this campaign than I think anything I've I've done in my life because I thought it was that uh, was that important? Uh, it uh, the primary happened uh, a couple days before essentially the nation shut down, and it was on March March seventeenth. Uh, I think that uh, may have decreased the turnout amongst some of the older voters who were uh, good voters for me in, in, in the Democratic primary. Uh, but uh, so I narrowly narrowly lost that, and um, you know I uh, you know. 
it was a, it was tough uh, to you know take a defeat. Uh, but as I said, I had people immediately reach out to me and you know thank me for what I had done and uh, thank me for for not backing down. And I know in the end that's what's most important. And I, I am confident that uh, you know God has a a, a plan for me to do uh, greater things uh, after after serving. So, 16 years in, uh, in in Congress is a is a long time. I'm very happy with what I was uh, what I was, I was able to do. But um, you know, the day after election, I said that we we move on from here and see what what God has planned. Well, the the fact that you were so targeted because of your extremely courageous pro-life stance is absolutely a badge of honor. And uh, l- let's talk about some of the issues that were a real priority for you in Congress. We know, of course, that the right to life issue was one of the preeminent issues that you worked on. But you also worked across the aisle on issues like international religious freedom. And I believe that in addition to helping to chair the pro Life Caucus, you helped to chair the International Religious Freedom Caucus as well. Tell us a little bit about your work on that issue. Uh, yes, I'm co-chair of the International Religious Freedom Caucus because I, I know how how critical uh, that uh, that issue is. I've been uh, attending the International Catholic Legislators Network uh, annual meeting for most of the last ten years uh, since they've had it, and it's been a it, that's a, a meeting that brings together Catholic legislators from around the world to talk about issues that are important everywhere in the world to Catholics. And, and one of those issues is is religious freedom. And, and we see in many places around the world, we, we see a lot of issues and we hear a lot about the issues in, in the Middle East. And uh, we also know that China, uh, serious problems in, in China with religious freedom. And this is something that we have to continue to, you know, America needs to, to, to step up and needs to continue to speak out for the importance of, of religious freedom. Uh, I mean, it's something clearly important uh, in, our, in our country. I, I have been very outspoken about religious freedom in our country also, because um, even though it's not the same uh, drastic uh, circumstances that we face in our country. Uh, I do have concerns in our country about losing our religious freedom. But, you know, in China and many countries in, in the Middle East, it's a matter of life and death. So uh, it's been very important for me. I think for the last, I think it's been the last five years, I have been the co-chair of that uh, of that caucus in the House. Congressman, here in the United States, religious freedom is starting to seem a little bit life and death to us, Americans who have been used to a lot of consider for our consciences and our rights to exercise our religious freedom in the public square. And we are understandably feeling that these rights are becoming harder to exercise, that uh, our options are becoming narrower. We had just now a a recent defeat in the Supreme Court with a June medical case, Louisiana trying to uh, put common sense regulations around abortion for women's safety. But you have shown through your work in Congress for so many years and the way that you've worked with so much integrity, even when you were swimming against the current of your own party, 
when it comes to these important issues. What is it that gave you that kind of strength and that kind of determination to be that voice in the wilderness <laughs> crying out for what's right? Oh, uh, well, I, I, I can't rule out just being stubborn for one thing, but uh, <laughs> besides that, I, I just have always, well, I, I grew up in church at school, I went to Catholic school for, for 12 years, and, and also at home, I, you know, was taught the, the value of, of life and that my responsibility, number one responsibility in life is to to live for Christ. And you know, it's so easy, I think, for a lot of people uh, when they get involved in, in politics. And, you know, it's a great, uh, it's a great way to be of service to others is to be involved in, in government and in, in politics. But it sometimes, I think, for a lot of people, uh, they become so wrapped up in that and that becomes their self-worth and they make a lot of compromises to what they believe so that they can, uh, you know, gain power to gain influence. And I knew that I was never going to do that. I knew that the issue, I remember, you know, when I first ran for Congress 16 years ago, I remember saying you know, the one issue that I know I will never change on no matter what happens is I'm always going to be pro-life and I'm going to be outspoken about being pro-life. And it, at the time, 16 years ago, it was a minority view inside the Democratic Party, but it, there were a lot of members who were pro-life. Even 10 years ago when we voted on the Affordable Care Act, the first time it went through the House, I think we had 64 Democrats who voted for the uh, Stupak Pitts Amendment that said no taxpayer funding for uh, insurance that, that covered abortion. But it was something that I've I've always known. Look, I have to get up every day and look at myself in the mirror, and I understand that when I stand for for judgment before the Lord, that I'm not going to be able to hide behind anyone or anything and I have to really be able to account for did I stand up for the the most vulnerable in our society it's a challenge that for me and for everyone every, every day to continue to to live up to that and so you know that's what really helped me to, to keep keep strong on this and it helped to have other people who, who encouraged me and, and you know i think that's something important for all of us to remember to to encourage one another in our faith and in what we what we know to be true uh, because as i said it meant a lot to me and people reached out to me afterwards you know i i received a lot of calls i received a call from cardinal dolan received a call from the um carl anderson the supreme knight of knights of columbus just thanking me for standing up for life and we all have to remember to do that for each other and help each other uh uh, we're Catholics. We we know this is a we are in community, and we need to help support each other. Well, your fortitude is so admirable, and you know we all face this in little ways in our life, but you face this in a really big way because your job, your entire career, was on the line. And and I guess I have two questions for you along those lines. One, I'm curious if you can share any anecdotes about any arm twisting. I mean, I'm just curious how much pressure did 
did you face within your own Democratic caucus? How much did they lean on you and twist your arm? And then secondly, how did you find that inspiration? I know you have a great devotion to St. John Paul II, and I'm just curious, how did you find that inspiration to have the fortitude that you have? Well, in terms of the, the, the pressure, one thing, because I was so strong and showed that I would uh, to my um, colleagues in, in my party that I was going to hold strong on the abortion issue, uh, I didn't really have, after a while, people learned that I was not going to be an easy one to convince to change on the uh, when there was a vote coming up and so I was largely uh, largely left alone but you know it got to in in 2018 I had uh, a few of my colleagues here in the house and endorsed my primary opponent uh, this time I had even more uh, so it wasn't a matter of them coming up to me privately and saying something to me it was very publicly coming out and saying we want to get rid of you I had five presidential candidates come out in support my opponent and I'm sure the only thing they knew about me was that I was pro-life but they had to signal to the rest of the the party that how serious they were about being pro-choice and they're going to oppose this horrible pro-life democrat and rid the democratic party of anyone who is who is pro-life so I certainly felt that more more directly I um, you know I signed a discharge petition uh, last year on the uh, born live infant uh, Protection Act, and uh, I'll just say that uh, I, I did. Uh, that's one that I heard privately some uh, complaints about me doing that, uh, and I'll just I'll leave it at that for for now. Uh, but I I knew I was not going to I was not going going to change, and um, it um, you know there, there's just something. Uh, about watching other people uh, through the years, other people who have changed their their position, and uh, just sort of imagining myself in in their position and thinking, I I, I could not see that. And again, it comes down to what what a person truly values internally, and that's um, I that's that's where it comes from. Congressman, I've been to a lot of different graduations, colleges, high schools, and I've heard all sorts of speeches, some of them better, some of them worse. Uh, but you recently gave a commencement speech, which was very beautiful, and it's on YouTube, and we'll, we'll post it to our podcast show notes so our listeners can, can watch it also. Uh, you gave a very beautiful commencement speech to a high school graduating class, and one of the lines that you said was, if you really want to change the world, you must choose to be Catholic and carry Jesus into the public square. That was, that's a beautiful message, and I think your life exemplifies that. What were you trying to share with those graduates uh, in that speech? Well, I think in our society today, there is so much talk about uh, division. Uh, uh, we are two tribes, and they, they roughly equate to the, the two political parties. And I, I was saying that, look, to be truly Catholic, uh, we don't fit comfort completely comfortably in, in either party. And when it comes to politics, okay, you need to choose a party, but don't let partisanship become a religion for you. Remember, first and foremost, to be Catholic and to stand for those things that we as Catholics 
believe about the about the common good in in what is in what is true and this is something that our world today there's fewer and fewer people who understand the catholic view of of the world and uh, of truth and and what is good uh a lot of people don't understand uh my the way i have voted in congress uh because they don't understand how someone could vote sometimes as a democrat and sometimes they see as a as a republican and and, and they're very confused by it but i very much uh keep it in in line uh, try to keep it in line with what i believe is uh as a catholic uh what i uh, should be doing in my you know, my message to uh graduates is be catholic and first and foremost be catholic and everyone everyone leaving school especially leaving college talks about you know wanting to change the world well that's the way to do it don't get swept up in some of what we see going on, especially what some of what we see going on right now uh, in, in, in society. Uh, don't be you know, co-opted, coerced in, into doing things that uh, are not true to our, our, our Catholic beliefs. What, if we really want to change the world, and as you mentioned earlier, uh, St. John Paul II, who's you know, truly to me as a uh, as a polish american especially uh, uh just his witness uh is just incredible i think even more important today than uh when he was alive uh because you know we have to have we have to have hope no matter how bad some things look right now uh and he's truly an inspiration to me a man who went through everything that he went through in his life but he still always held firm to to his his faith and so he always had hope and that, that's important for all of us to remember uh, no matter how dark things may seem uh, today we know our hope is in christ and we know that we need to always have hope and not uh, fall into despair well, Congressman Lipinski, we're going to miss you very sorely in Congress and in our nation's capital, but I'm sure that wherever you go next, you will bring your beautiful soul to it and people will be the better for it. So thank you for joining us today on Conversations with Consequences. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And now Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry and it's a joy to have a chance to ponder with you the consequential conversation God wants to have with each of us this Sunday as the church celebrates the feast of the epiphany of the Lord, Jesus' manifestation to all the Gentiles and the persons of the Magi coming from afar. The Lord's epiphany was also an epiphany of the men whom tradition has always called wise. An essential aspect of their true character was revealed. It's key for us to ponder the response of the wise men, to go on pilgrimage with them to Bethlehem, and to learn from them invaluable lessons about how we're called to relate to the coming of God into the world. And as we are just after the first of the year, the lessons that we learn from this feast can easily turn into New Year's resolutions to help us make this new year a true year of the Lord. This Sunday we can ponder seven lessons. The first thing we learn from the wise men is the importance of seeking God. When they saw the star at its rising, like so many of us have seen that special light coming from Jupiter and Saturn's 
intersection about a week ago. They not only interpreted that God was trying to communicate something to them in general, but that God was specifically heralding the birth of the newborn king in the East who would be a universal king. The stars, as we know, were incredibly important to the ancients. 2,000 years ago in the deserts of the Middle East and on the seas, people were highly dependent on the fixed star as references for their direction. They firmly believed that God had made them fixed in this way for that reason. Whenever anything happened in the sky that was new, like the appearance of a comet or a meteor shower, or planets or stars shining more brightly, the ancients thought that it had to bear some message from God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. When they saw a star at its rising, they didn't respond as curious astrologers, but as those who hungered to find out what they sought. Led by the star and their simple faith in its meaning, the wise men went on a journey toward the Holy Land. We don't know how long their pilgrimage took, but the gospel gives us an indication that it wasn't brief. After Herod asked them the exact time of the appearance of the star, a short time later, after they didn't return, he proceeded to kill every boy in Bethlehem under two. So the time of their preparation and journey to get there probably took 18 to 24 months. Whether they walked or had a, the help of animals, we don't know for sure, but they came. They made a journey of many months each way because they believed God was speaking to them through a star. Do we search for God as ardently as they did? That's the first lesson. Second thing the wise men show us is that the life of faith is a pilgrimage. The wise men were ready to move, even though they must have had good lives where they were since they could afford a long journey and bestow precious gifts at their arrival. They accounted being with the newborn universal king more important than staying where they were. They were willing to leave everything behind and make a long, difficult journey following the star they had seen in the east. Are we ready to make the continuous journey of faith a spiritual pilgrimage? Third lesson, they show us that this pilgrimage of life is not one that we're supposed to make alone. The wise men didn't journey solo. They walked together. They knew that in order to make the destination, they needed each other. But more than that, they wanted to journey together. Likewise, the Catholic pilgrimage of faith is not a do-it-yourself thing. We need the help of others on the search for God to pass through various deserts of life. Just as much as pilgrims on the Camino de Santiago in Spain, we need fellow travelers. Spouses need each other. Children need parents. We all need our friends and spiritual siblings. Priests need their brother priests. Parishioners need each other. As we've learned even more during this pandemic, the church's pilgrimage is a family journey, one done in communion, trying not to leave anyone behind, but getting everyone moving. Are we grateful for those whom God has placed with us to make this journey? Fourth lesson, the Magi show us that we need to be guided on the path of faith. They got to Bethlehem because they had allowed themselves to be guided by the star. They were attentive in obedience to the guidance God gave. Likewise, we all need to be guided. God guides us in sacred scripture, for example, which you should study like the wise men study the stars. Another guide is the church. A third guide is the saints. How well do we allow ourselves to be guided? Fifth, the wise men show us how to be willing to accept God on his terms, not ours. When the wise men found Jesus, he was far from what they must have been expecting. They likely expected to find the newborn king in a palace, not in a stable, wrapped in royal sick, not in swaddling clothes, surrounded by courtiers, not animals and shepherds. And when they found him as he was, they didn't turn back. They were willing to let their own categories be changed by God rather than to try to fit God into their own categories. They needed to change their ideas about power, about God, about man. 
Sure, they had to change themselves and see that God's power is not like that of the powerful of the world. God's ways are not as we imagine them or we might wish them to be. God is different. Likewise, throughout our life, we must learn God's ways and how to conform our ways to his, especially when he asks us to model our life in the mystery of his self-giving love on the cross. Do we accept God as he comes? Sixth, the Magi teach us about true adoration. The greatest gift they gave to the baby Jesus was not gold, frankincense, or myrrh, but themselves. St. Matthew tells us that they prostrated themselves and did him homage. They adored him. That's what we're called to do as well. St. Jesus, before whom they prostrated, comes to our churches on the altar. We're called to prostrate ourselves in humble homage before him, lay ourselves in our gifts, at the same time receive the blessing that Christ wants to give us by himself coming to meet us in humility so that he might lift us up and help us to continue on the journey. Lastly, the Magi show us how to encounter, how the encounter with Christ is meant to change us. St. Matthew says that the wise men returned home by another route, which the great saints of the church have always said points to far more than a detour to evade Herod. It points to the fact that they returned changed. They returned differently than they arrived, converted more and more to the new king's ways and categories, to the way of faith, to the path of Christ-like love. Similarly, every time we journey to Mass, every time we come together with others on the pilgrimage to bring them our gifts and sacrifices and especially the offering of our whole life and prayerful homage, we're supposed to leave differently than we arrived, changed by the word we heard, changed by truly praying the collection, the collects and the petitions of the Mass, changed by becoming one with the Lord on the inside. Every Mass is meant to change our life forever and send us back different, transformed, following no longer our own way, but following Jesus' own path up close. Is that what we're expecting when we come to Mass? As we'll have a chance to ponder together at Mass on Sunday, the Mass is Christ's continual epiphany, but our contemporaries need us once again to be the wise men who show where the star of the tabernacle lamp and altar candle still burn, to help and encourage those we know to join us on the journey to find Christ and come into a life-changing communion with him. God is calling us, you and me, to be the modern Melchiors, Balthazars, and Caspers. And he wants to give us at Mass all the help he knows we need to fulfill this mission, a mission that's become more urgent after the shutdown of the churches during the early days of the pandemic and how so few have actually returned to our coming in March. We need to be those wise men. As we fall to our knees this Sunday before the same Lord before whom the Magi themselves prostrated themselves, God wants us like them to discover the glory of God in the highest. Let us therefore go with haste to Bethlehem so that we might adore him too. God bless you all. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com. And you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy. And you go with our prayers. <laughs>